Well, welcome to the Everyday Church for Everyday People. We're glad you're here, whether you're tuning in online or you're here in a pew. I'm Jared Webb. I'm assistant pastor here. And I just want to get us rolling here and see if you've had the same experience that I've had. Okay? So you're looking on Amazon to purchase a product. And I don't know about you, but I get really serious about reviews. Doesn't matter if it's Amazon or anything else, but even on Amazon, I'm looking through the reviews. Because why would you want to waste your money on something that is anything less than has a four-star average review, right? Let other people be the test dummies who have to buy the products before they have any reviews. You don't have to do that. So I'm going to make sure that I have the best of the best. So let's get real, guys, for a second. Let's say we're looking for a nose hair trimmer. It's a real need, okay? Because wives don't like the dangly danglies coming out when you're coming in for a smooch. You got to have one. If you don't have one, go buy one after this. So you're looking for a nose hair trimmer. I'm scrolling on my phone, and I read through some reviews. Best nose trimmer ever. Changed my nose forever. And like... And so I hit buy because this thing has 10,000 reviews and has a four and a half star average out of five. Where could you go wrong? And it comes the, the next day and it doesn't matter even if you know it's coming. You're always excited that there's a package on your porch. You open the box up and I get that Ferrari running and it, listen to it purr. It's going to change my life. But the awesomeness doesn't stop there because not only do I get an amazing nose hair trimmer, but there's also this little card inside the box that says, leave us a five-star review, get a $15 Amazon gift card. <laughs> so not only do I get an amazing nose hair trimmer, but you're telling me I'm going to get more money to buy more nose hair trimmers? So I can have one in the garage, one at the office, anywhere that I would need one. But then it sinks in, and you think to yourself, well, how many other people got this card? And how many other people took them up on the deal to get the $15 Amazon gift card? And how many of the reviews that were so great did I read where these people just left a good review because they were so excited about the Amazon gift card and they haven't even really even tried the nose hair trimmer yet? How do I know which reviews were legit and which reviews were bought, so to speak? That four and a half star review might not be as legitimate as I thought it was. You don't know what to trust. You don't know what reviews to trust. And the same seems to be true with God. Because it seems like we have these conflicting reviews about God. Especially when we look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament. They seem to be conflicting. Or at least a lot of people like to say and point out why does it seem like God is so different here than he is here. Did God pay off the New Testament writers with Amazon gift cards to make him sound better after he got bad press in the Old Testament? 
conflicting reviews. When you look through the Old Testament, we see a God of power, a God who will wipe out all of humanity except for one family with a flood, a God who will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with flaming blue rocks, a man, a God who can split open the earth and swallow up people who are rebelling against him, a God who sends two she-bears to protect a man who's getting made fun of for being bald, a God who has power, a God you don't want to mess with. And then we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, a man who's gentle, who the little children are drawn to, a man who asks his disciples to lay down their swords while he heals the ear of a man who had just cut off by Peter, a man who's being willing to be whipped and killed on our behalf, a, a man who heals the sick and casts out demons, a God who has compassion for people who look like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's not a mystery that there's a lot more violence, there's a lot more crazy stuff going on in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of stories of God punishing people. I'm not going to deny that. So God starts out in a blaze of glory, hellfire and brimstone, and then we turn the pages toward the end, toward the back in the New Testament, and God gets all mushy-gushy. So what happens here? Which review should we trust? How do we know which review, if any, is the one we should follow? What exactly is God like as a person? Why do we have these conflicting pictures? Why do some people give a one-star review and other people give a five-star review? Is God actually loving? Or is he just a God who manipulates through his love in the New Testament? Is God actually a God of love or is he a God of wrath? What is God actually like? That is the question that I want to explore with you today in the book of Zephaniah. It's a minor prophet book, so it's toward the back of the Old Testament. I promise you it's there. Lesser known, but it exists. But Zephaniah was a prophet who lived during the time of Josiah. Josiah, King Josiah, was a man who was known for his reform and the people of God. He tried to lead the people of God back to their Lord. And as great as that was, it didn't really pan out because the people eventually just went back to their wicked ways. And so Zephaniah, it seems, is watching all of this pan out. The reforms and then their failure and the people straying away from God. And we get into the opening verses of Zephaniah, and Zephaniah talks about his ancestry, and then God speaks. And they say, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So I just want you to keep that in mind, because this is the first thing that God says in the book of Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, says this. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people 
and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble. And I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. So let's just sit on this for a moment, okay? So you meet someone for the first time. You ask them your, their name, like what do they do for hobbies? What do they do on the weekend? And they just cut the small talk and just say, I will destroy you. Okay, it's pretty forward, right? You only get one chance to make a first impression. And, and at that point, you're saying, man, uh, it's, would you look at the time? I have an appointment to trim my nose hairs. Um, see you later. So, and what is even more confusing is that if you're like me, you think back to Genesis when God says, hey, I'm not going to wipe out humanity again, right? And then right here, it's like, okay, what are you saying? You just said you weren't going to do that a little bit ago. Now you changed your mind. But, I mean, if you read the fine print, God technically says he won't make the world flood again, right? So it's kind of like a ninja saying, hey, I won't strangle you anymore, but he, he still got his nunchucks and throwing stars and a sword, right? God could destroy us in an instant. And who knows what he would use, whether it's ravaging weasels or giant Venus flytraps or, or flaming rocks from the sky. God could destroy us in any second. That's a fact. And honestly, this is what people dislike about God, that he would punish us because he seems like an angry and vindictive Viking in this situation. And it keeps going throughout the book of Zephaniah. And we get to chapter 3, verse 8, and God says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So the opening of the book, God's just focused on, on the fact that his people are turning from him. He's going to punish his own people for all their wickedness. But by the time we get to this point in the book, God has expanded his, his array of who he's going to take out. So not only is he going to take out his own people, he's going to take out all of the nations of the earth. He's going to pour out his wrath, all his burning anger, and all of their wrongdoing, and all their injustices, and all of their idol, idolatry of just worshiping other gods instead of the one true God. And here, in Zephaniah, we are reading about a God of wrath, a God who punishes wrongdoing. God's wrath is what makes people reject him. Some people will say, I'm not going to get anywhere close to a God who seems like that. A God who's going to make his own rules and then punish me for not following them. The anger of God pushes some people away. But ironically, God's wrath 
is also the same reason that some people follow him. Because they think to themselves, well, I don't want to get on God's bad side. I don't want to be one of the people that he's going to pour out his wrath on. So I'm going to follow his rules. I'm going to do what he says to do. I don't want the punishment he has to offer. I don't agree with all of his rules, but I'll do what he says because I don't want to get on his bad side. I don't want to suffer the consequences. And this is how I came to the Lord. I remember sitting in an evening service in Colon, Michigan, and feeling the rumbling and tumbling of spiritual feelings and convictions that just made me want to vomit. My mom had started to drag me to church, and which I hated because I thought the music stunk, and I would much rather be at home playing video games. But nonetheless, I was there at that evening service, and I, I felt the need to accept Jesus as my Savior. But it was really motivated by this just gut feeling of, I don't want to be punished. So there I was in the fellowship hall on the stage, on the steps of the little stage in there at New Covenant Christian Fellowship. And Pastor Clint led me through the prayer and I accepted the Lord in my life. And soon after, I kept thinking to myself, what else do I need to do to appease this God? Because I don't want to go to hell. So I got baptized. I'm like, okay, now I'm good. I got dunked like he said I was supposed to. And then after that, all the things that I did, I was trying to do to make sure that I kept him happy so that I wouldn't have to suffer the consequences, that I didn't have to face those scary things in Revelation that my grandma would tell me about that I wouldn't have to face the anger that's described in the book of Zephaniah. And I would guess that many of you have had a similar view of God at some point. Or maybe you still view God in this way. I am going to follow God because I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to follow God so that I stay on his good side. I'm going to follow God because I don't want to make him angry. Or maybe there's someone in this room who has never decided to follow the Lord because they've thought to themselves, I don't want a God like that in my life. Is this the best picture of God that we have? Or is there something more? It's a picture that seems to line up with the first part of Zephaniah. But let's keep reading. Let's, let's read through more of this doom and gloom. So get, get ready for some more anger. Get ready for some more wrath. We're going to chapter 3, verse 17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He'll take delight. In you, with gladness, with his love, he'll calm all your fears. He'll rejoice over you 
with joyful songs? Is this the same guy we were just talking about? Is this the same God that we were just talking about? Because Zephaniah seems to be giving us a conflicting review. It seems like he's given a good review of God and a bad review of God all at the same time. It's one thing for there to be two different reviews that conflict with each other, a bad review and a good review. It's another thing when one review has contradictory feelings within it. So Zephaniah is describing this angry God who also wants to take delight in us. Can you imagine an angry man who wants to calm all your fears? An angry man who wants to rejoice over you with song? It kind of reminds me like, of like if the Hulk just picked you up in his arms and sang you a lullaby. Hulk comfort. <laughs> you know? It doesn't seem to fit. Because this verse that Zephaniah shares sounds a lot more like Jesus in the New Testament. Let me, let me read it to you again. Back to 317. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He'll take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Sounds a lot more like the New Testament that we talked about earlier. So what exactly does this mean? Is God a God of love or is he a God of punishment? Is he a happy guy or an angry guy? Should I be scared of him or not? What's his personality? We certainly can't say that he's angry all the time because we have this passage. We get to this point in the book of Zephaniah and God's talking about all of the, the things he's going to bring about, all of the punishment he's going to bring about, and then he comes to a place where he's going to restore his people and he has this verse. I'll rejoice over you. I'll delight in you. I'll quiet you with my love. So he can't be just a God of punishment. We can't say just that. So what is it? Now, I want you to, to think about this for a minute, because why, why does anybody want to make something? Or rather, in this case, why would God want to create the universe? Would he really want to create it just to punish it? Would you build something that you knew was going to bring you more headaches and that was all it's going to bring you? Other than Ford, okay? But would you build something that would intentionally bring you anger? Why would God create a universe that was just going to frustrate him? God didn't create the universe because he was bloodthirsty or because he wanted to create headaches. He wanted to police people. No. It seems like he wanted to create the universe 
to share his love. So certainly he can't be just a God of punishment. But nonetheless, we still have this fact that he does punish at times. God is a God of power. God is a God who can do things that should ignite fear in your heart if they're coming your way. God is a God who punishes. But Zephaniah ends the book with this conflicting image. So which is it? Is God a God of love or is he a God of punishment? The pictures don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive because God is a loving father with standards. I'll say it again. God is a loving father with standards. But first and foremost, he's a loving father. Why does the love get to overshadow the punishment? Because God did not create the universe just to punish it. He created the universe to share his love. The reality is that, yes, God is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He has standards because he is the truth. He made the universe. He gets to call the shots. And when people go against those parameters, he has the right to be upset. If he never punished, then we would never know what right actually was. You ever been around a kid who's never been disciplined? What are they like? If God never came through, if he never put his foot down, if he never showed us when we were out of line, we would never know when we are in line. At some point, he has to set things Right, but nonetheless, it flows out of his love because he wants us to be in the right place. God's love, not his punishment, defines him. All the doom and gloom is not his personality. Love is and always has been the root. He creates in order to love. He's a loving father with standards. He creates a covenant with his people, a promise with his people in order to love them. He becomes one of us as Jesus Christ in order to love us, not to punish us. God's punishment, God's righteousness, God's justice in Zephaniah is not because he wants to just see the world burn. He's bringing justice to his people so that they can be restored, so that things can be as they always were meant to be. He has to clean house at some point. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but at some point he has to lay down the law because he is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He's a loving father with standards. We might not like the whole punishment piece, it's, it's going to get bad reviews all the time. That's fine, but you can't deny that his primary motivation is love and always love and not punishment. God is not working toward more people being punished. He's always working toward more people being loved. He's not working toward more suffering. He's working toward more healing. Punishment would have ended the story. Think about it. If he really was that fed up with us, why are we still here? Because he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
He lets time drag out so that all of us have a chance to be saved. Love lengthens the story. Now, there's a statement that comes up over and over in the Old Testament that really reveals the heart of God. And the Lord said it to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai with him. Exodus 34, 5 through 7 says this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousand, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And it doesn't feel like it. But his love always leads the way. It doesn't feel like it all the time. But his love always leads the way. He wants to forgive the people who are wicked. He wants to give them a chance. But at some point, he has to lay down the law. Otherwise, the law means nothing. His love, not his anger, defines him. He's slow to anger, but abounding in love. His jealousy, his anger always flows out of the love. He is a loving father with standards. His punishments are always last resorts, not first resorts. But somehow we flip the paradigm altogether, and some people just like to erase all of God's love because he has some punishment lined up. And Satan wants you to believe that God is just an angry man. Because either if you are a follower of God and you follow him because you're scared of him, because you won't have the fullness of the relationship with God that's available, or if he can keep you scared, it keeps you away from God. That's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. And his love, not his punishment, defines him. The scriptures say that God is love. They never say God is punishment. The Old Testament book of Zephaniah sounds a lot like Jesus because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. God always has been and always will be a God of love. God always has been and always will be a God of love. 1 John 4.8 says, But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God always has been and always will be a God of love. So which review wins out? Is God a God of love or a God of punishment? He's a loving father with standards. He's a loving father who punishes when he absolutely needs to. He's slow to anger but abounding with love. He wants to delight in you. He wants to rejoice over you with singing. He wants to calm all your fears with his love. So now that we know that God is a God of love, how should we live? I want to ask you, 
Do you follow God because you're scared of him? Is your relationship with God rooted in the fact that you're scared of him? Or is it rooted in the fact that you know you're loved by him? The Bible talks about the fear of God. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have any fear as the Bible is describing. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's talking about you recognizing that you do not have the power that God has. That you should technically quake in your boots if he ever threatened you with anything because he can actually do it. With a snap of his fingers, you're gone. That's the fear of God. But that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be scared of him all the time. It doesn't mean that whenever we are offered an invitation into his house to get to know him, an opportunity to encounter him, that we're like, no, I'd rather not. He freaks me out. He intimidates me. He scares me. He just wants to punish me all the time. So which is it? Is your relationship with God rooted in an unhealthy fear of him? Do you find yourself doing all of the things that Christians should do because you're scared that you'll lose your salvation? Do you find yourself always wondering if you're going to end up in hell, even though you've asked God into your heart? When I was scared of God, when my own relationship with the Lord was rooted in this unhealthy fear of him, I always had this anxious pit in my stomach because I was worried I wasn't pleasing God. But when I moved to a relationship that was rooted in knowing I was loved by him, that anxiety dissipated. When I was scared of God, I lived in a state of disapproval of myself. But when I moved to a relationship with God where I knew I was loved by him no matter what, I knew I already had God's approval. And it mattered more than what man thought of me. I gained self-worth. When I was scared of God, I was prone toward depression and legalism in my relationship with him. When my relationship is rooted in God's love, I'm focused on the joy and the freedom that he grants me. When I was scared of God, I was pressured to do or not do the next thing that would keep him happy. But when I'm motivated by love, when my relationship with him is rooted in the fact that I'm loved by him, I'm excited to do something I know will put a smile on his face. He's not a father who wants to put you in your place. He's a father who wants to give you a place. He's not a father who wants to abuse you. He's a father who wants to love on you. He's not a father who wants to make you feel like a pile of junk. He's a father who wants you to know that he couldn't love you more than he already does. He's not a father who has plans to destroy you, but plans to prosper you. He's not a father who lives to punish you, but lives to rejoice over you with singing, to quiet you with his love, to delight in you because he loves you. Do you want to meet him? Do you want to know this God? Have you actually met him? Because it's one thing for me to give my review. But you're never going to know until you meet him for yourself.
You can read all the reviews you want on Amazon, but you're never really going to know until you order the product for yourself. You can listen to all these people talk about Jesus for themselves, but you're never really going to know until you encounter him, experience him for yourself, and truly find that God is a loving father. So my challenge to you today is encounter our God of love for yourself. Encounter our God of love for yourself. So I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're just going to have a little time of response, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. Have you ever met somebody who's got a, a resting Jezebel face, so to speak? Okay? Like, they always look angry, and <laughs> they are, there always seems to be someone who says, well, you just got to get to know them, because actually they're not as mean as they seem. They really are a great person. Are you going to wait and listen to all these reviews of other people? Or are you going to take the chance to see if God truly is a God of love? Or are you going to let all the bad reviews keep you away from experiencing a relationship with him that's not rooted in being scared of him, but rooted in being loved by him? It is one thing for you to be able to answer the question and say, oh, I know I'm loved by God. But have you actually experienced it in your heart? That is a completely different thing. That'll change your relationship with the Lord when you encounter him for yourself and you truly feel in your heart that you are loved by him. No matter what, you have to encounter him for yourself. So I just want to go into a time with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed. And I just want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're a person who's sitting in this room right now and you're thinking to yourself, man, I follow the Lord, but really my relationship with him is rooted in the fact that I'm scared of him. I want to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. And that's about it. I don't really know God himself. I just know I need to follow his rules. But I want to change that. I want to move from a relationship where I'm scared of him to a relationship where I know I'm loved by him. If that's you, again, every head bowed, all the eyes closed, I just want you to raise your hand. maybe you're in this room and you're thinking to yourself, man, I've never wanted to meet this God before because I've heard all these bad reviews. I've never wanted a relationship with him. But now I think I might want to encounter this God of love, this God who is for me and not against me. I think I might want to accept the Lord into my life for the first time that's you, I just want to encourage you to raise your hand right now.
us pray. Lord, would you help us? Anyone in this room who feels like they don't know what your love truly is, they haven't encountered your love for themselves, I ask that in this time where we move into a time of communion, that it would be an opportunity for us to feel your love palpably in this place, right here and right now. And may the fruits of that relationship go out into all of Mary so that others can come to know your loving presence. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.